0: Entrepreneurs, I think, know the following better than creatives do in some sense, and that is entrepreneurs typically and hopefully don't worry about failure as much as people who don't succeed. They, they sort of rush right by failure. It's like hardly noticing it onto the next thing. And that's wonderful. And creatives take failure much more personally or as a greater
1: disaster and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompanycom forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, plan B, how to scale your technology business faster, and achieve plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from the fascinating Eric Mosel. Eric grew up in New York in the community of Holocaust survivors post-Second World War, so that frames much of his context. He's written 50 books, one a year. His latest book, The Coach's Way, Helps. It's a training manual for coaches, how to turn up and coach better. So that's a fascinating read. And we talk about one of his previous books, redesign your mind. We talk about cognitive therapy and how that works on thoughts that you might have. And in redesigning your mind, Eric talks us through how he comes up with a methodology for actually changing your thoughts or replacing those thoughts with something else. A fascinating concept and we talk about entrepreneurs. So Eric spends most of his time now coaching creatives, writers and artists. But we agree that really entrepreneurs are very similar to creatives and artists in many ways. And and that shows up, they're sort of strangers in their own communities or strangers in their own families. You know, who hasn't gone home for Christmas or in Thanksgiving and realized that we are, there are some things that bond us together, but there are many things that make us very different. And it reminded me of Roald Dahl's Matilda, where ordinary family have a very bright child. I do like, my kids like that when she glues her father's hat onto his head. That's their particular favorite Matilda stunt. Um, And Eric's got some tips about flow, burnout, post-pandemic, and how to live a better life and lower your anxiety. I think very interesting man who has a lot to teach us all. I thought it was a great conversation. I'm sure you will too.
0: My name is Eric Maisel. I'm a creativity coach and a trainer of creativity coaches. I write the Rethinking Mental Health blog for Psychology Today, which has had 3 million plus views. I'm the lead editor for the Ethics International Press Critical Psychology and Critical Psychiatry series, where we dispute the legitimacy of psychiatry and psychotherapy, which is a mouthful, but that's what we do. And I'm the author of 50 plus books in the areas of creativity, life purpose, meaning and mental health.
1: Over what period of time did you write your fifty books? Fifty years. One a year. Give or take. Was that a plan? Did you sit one wake up one day and go write a book and I'm going to just keep going every year? Or are you now do you now feel like you're on a are you on now, you're on a streak so you have to keep going? <laughs>
0: No, my explanation for it is that I was born right after World War II, and World War II was the big event in the neighborhood. That's what we lived in a neighborhood of Holocaust survivors and ethnic immigrants and what have you. So, World War II was on all of our minds. And the idea of being a resistance fighter struck me as important, even when I was five or six or seven. And I think that's where the books are coming from this whole time is just wanting to expose humbug and just not. (laughs) <laughs> not liking a lot of what the, what the world says is right. So I think it's been not so much writing books as resisting.
1: Aha. Resisting the orthodoxy.
0: Resisting the orthodoxy and the BS.
1: Can we jump into the smart thing? That feels like we were talking before we were recording about, you've written some books about being smart in a not smart world. I'm paraphrasing you there. But that that feels again like resistance. And be, I, I don't want to lose that train of thought. So I'd love to understand what you mean by that and and what help you've given to people.
0: Yeah. Forgetting for the second about how one might define smart, whether that's about the old fashioned idea of IQ or multiple intelligences or however to define it, we must believe that intelligence flows over a normal curve just as all things flow over a normal curve and that out to the right the one standard deviation or two standard deviations. there are people who are more intelligent than our other people. They keep culture alive, they keep civilization alive. they write constitutions. they're important to us. They're not just different. they're important to our civilization and they're not nurtured in most cultures because people who are less smart typically are jealous of smart people. That's a that's an age-old truth. And smart people are often the first ones picked on by tyrants, the first ones silenced, because smart people are likely the ones who see through the humbug of the tyrant and want to speak out. Smart people have been targeted since the beginning of time without maybe knowing that exactly. But you can sense that when in an in Iran, for instance, when a dictator comes aboard, he kills the doctors first. Now, you want your doctors when you're jealous of smart people, that's what you do. You kill your intellectuals first, you kill your doctors first, etc.
1: Well, if you look at the purge, the history of Stalin's purges, you know, it was like yeah, there, there was the doctors, but also took out the entrepreneurs. That's right. Right, because there are people with a, they're different. That's
0: exactly right. It's the round up the usual suspects from Casablanca, it's, it's the Jews and the gypsies and the homosexuals and the smart people and the entrepreneurs. And it's the, it's the usual suspects always. But, but if you're growing up smart, typically you, you're constrained. You're not allowed to be smart. School does not allow you to be smart. It wants you to know the answers to tests and to draw inside the line. So already your one famous actor, whose name is, escapes me now, said he was so bored in school that he drank ink. <laughs> God. I think that's the experience of being smart in school is that you're sitting there just dreadfully bored And you're going to act out. You're going to bounce off walls. You're going to nowadays end up with an ADHD diagnosis for sure. It's just bound to happen because all of this bursting chi in you, all of this bursting life energy in you has got to come out somehow. And whether that's being disruptive or however it is, being oppositional, that's the second favorite disorder of childhood nowadays is ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, meaning you just feel like saying no.
1: I I thought that was just being a child. No, it's now a disorder.
0: That, that used to be being a child. Now it's a, it's a very profitable disorder. These are profitable disorders. So, <laughs>
1: my, my children say no to me all the time.
0: Well, then they're disordered.
1: <laughs> I should take them to a therapist. We have drugs for that. <laughs> I love the fact that they say no. Well, My wife and I laugh and say we love the fact that they have spirit.
0: I know, but you are the exception. That's why you're You're living the life you live. That's why you have this podcast. You are the exception. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the people who are the exception and their struggles to remain the exception over time. As I say, it starts early on where you're not allowed to be smart, where you just need to know the answers. At the dinner table in most households, you're not supposed to ask questions like, why does God want me to wear a hat? What's that about?
1: (laughs) Yes, the whole... As your parents take you to church or the synagogue or wherever, and you go, "I just don't get it. Why?" That's right. And they go, "Don't stop asking questions. This is a belief thing. It's not a fact thing."
0: And in real life, you're not allowed to question it. We're we're joking, but in real life, children are not allowed to question. They're punished for questioning. There's a connection between what's called the authoritarian personality, which was a personality examined in the 1950s by a fellow named Adorno and other researchers at the University of California, Berkeley. Certain kind of personality, we see it now with the rise of fascism all around us, we see the authoritarian personality writ large in the world. And that person is also existing in families. That's not just a political person. It's not just a Hitler. It's a Hitler in the family. It's, it's the autocrat at the head of the family who's not going to allow you to ask questions. So if you are smart, you're going to be dumbed down in your own family. And so between school dumbing you down and your family dumbing you down, you're stuck not being as smart as you could be.
1: As you were talking there, what sprang to mind was Roald Dahl's Matilda, which is where where she she's just so much smarter than the rest of her family. And so she has to pretend to be dumb.
0: You know, in, in literature, we make that sort of a cute pretending, but in real life, that's 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 a painful pretending.
1: Yeah. Okay. So what's the essence of your advice to people?
0: Well, A, it's, it's to know this. It, it's to th- notice that this is going on and notice that you're going to have to fight for your individuality your whole life long. That's one of the struggles that a smart person is going to struggle with is fighting for his or her individuality. And because it's a struggle that typically makes smart people oppositional and they're at war with their culture in in small ways, but also in large ways, which means that they're never settled in their culture. They're always that child putting finger in the dike or that, that child saying the emperor has new clothes. That person is always struggling with society and will be rebuked by society. So it's not that there are answers to these questions, but rather just the understanding that by virtue of your, what I call original personality, that you came into the world th- this, you didn't do anything, that by virtue of your original personality, you're going to be at loggerheads with society your whole life
1: long. And are there, and maybe even your family?
0: Oh, and almost certainly your family. Why, why is Christmas so difficult, or Thanksgiving so difficult. It, it's not just having to make small talk, or or, or the family crises revisited. It, it's this sort of thing that, for many people, their parents, their uncles, their aunts are smaller than they are, <laughs> to the right of where they are, <laughs> just more autocratic and more authoritarian, and and it, it's it's hard to show up even for those two hours and listen to those conversations.
1: I was at an event in LA a couple of weeks ago and entrepreneur event. And one of the entrepreneurs said, I love this event. I don't need to filter what I say because the people in the room will celebrate my success. They will not envy me. And I spend most of my life with people where I have to filter what I'm thinking because of risk of causing offense or being envied. And so it feels as though that's exactly what you're Absolutely.
0: And in that other world that I live in, the creative and performing art world where I coach artists, the same thing is true, that they have to filter themselves. Envy is because with entrepreneurs, they have a chance to make money. With artists, they have very little chance to actually make money. 99 out of 100 artists can't live whereas 99 out of 100 entrepreneurs can live. And there's a a difference there. And so the envy is is more pronounced in the arts because only a few people are making it. And also the, the difference between someone making it and someone not making it is so extraordinary. You paint a flower and sell it for $20 and a Van Gogh flower goes for $150 million. And it's both just some paint on canvas, and that's kind of crazy making. It's kind of crazy making and, and artists really have to deal with the, these discrepancies and these these differences. And so they have to filter their real thoughts, which is how dare that go for $150 million. I want to want to slash it. It's just not it's not fair. It doesn't make sense.
1: Well, I'd also I'd also they might even be able to sell their picture because I'm thinking I do this sort of pricing stuff with entrepreneurs all the time. They might be able to sell that flower for $200 or $2,000 or $2 million themselves, but they probably have a mindset that says it's not worth that and therefore are unable to. They they may even think that their flower is better than the one that sold for $2 million at some level. And and it's like, but I'm only selling mine for 20 million, 20 pounds, $20. And it's like, it's, there's a whole load of stuff baked in there.
0: There's a whole lot of stuff baked in there. I've done whole webinars just on asking, just having my clients ask for what they want in the world, whether it's to be have their prices increased or to be on a, on a podcast or whatever it is that they want. My peeps have a lot of trouble asking for all kinds of reasons—a kind of embarrassment, maybe a kind of shame, whatever it's about. They do have that asking, so I'll often. Work with a client on, on, I'll put simple in air quotes, simple things like, let's just double your prices. Let's not go from $2,000 to $20,000, but let's go from $2,000 to $4,000. Let's see if, because buyers are peculiar people, maybe they prefer $4,000 to $2,000. We understand buyer psychology, which is weird, and we don't quite know why buyers do what they do, But so let's just double your price and see what happens. But I have to massage this and talk my clients into understanding that if they're ever going to get out of their day job or if they're ever going to, often my clients are called by their mates who are making money parasites for not making, that is that there's a dynamic in in the family where if you're not making money, you're disparaged. It's clear why that would happen. So if you want to get over that, if you want to stop being a so to speak parasite, if you want to get rid of your day job, you're going to have to make money from what you do. And my line for this is you're going to have to prove the exception that the rule is artists don't make money. You're going to have to prove the exception and let's, let's have you be the exception.
1: Fab. And so there must be a great sense of how often are you able to persuade them to do the thing that they're not keen to do? I don't mean persuade. I mean, help them open the door and step through it because you're not making them do anything. They're just allowing themselves to do something.
0: I don't mind the word. I don't mind feeling like I'm trying to persuade them for their own benefit. But it's a a two-step process, as you can imagine. One is to get them to agree to the idea, and the other is to get them to do the work. And it's easy to have them agree to the idea. Sure, that sounds like a good idea. But are they actually going to write to their gallery owner and say, my paintings are now $4,000 rather than $2,000? No, that takes... A heck of a long time to have happen. And it, t- it takes me noticing that they haven't done it. They're often not going to, re- they're going to talk about something else in the next session. They're not going to report and say, by the way, I didn't change my prices yet. Some of my cl- over time, my clients will actually start to say that. They'll start to admit that they haven't done the work. But in the beginning, clients don't want to, you know, we're all defensive, tricky creatures. We don't want to admit that we didn't do what we agreed to do. So it's a little bit on my shoulders to remind them that, you know, you said you wanted to do this this past month. Did you do it? Did you manage to do it? And they will, you know, shamefacedly and with chagrin say, not quite. And then we just have to get back on the horse, right? You know, that's, first First is the self-forgiveness part, by the way, before getting back on the horse, I have to invite them to just try to forgive themselves for not having gotten to it. Because there are all kinds of reasons why they didn't get to it, et cetera, et cetera. So, Let's be a little kind and generous, and let's be compassionate. And why don't you forgive yourself? And now let's get back to the work.
1: Okay. So thank you for indulging me on that. I think I think that's I think lots of the entrepreneurs who are listening will be reassured that they are strange creatures.
0: I didn't know that.
1: <laughs> I think sometimes people wonder. You know, as you say, you look at other people. Christmas seems like a joyous time for them and their families. Mm-hmm. And you think maybe you're envious of their joy and their, the simplicity. I mean, I, I remember having a lady who used to work for me years ago, you know, she'd finish work, she'd go home, she'd watch a soap opera, she'd cook a dinner, she'd go to bed, she'd come back to work. And just think it's a bit like taking the other pill in the matrix. It's like, you know, you don't have to make any decisions. There are There is no stress in your life. That's right. Maybe, maybe one day you just think, God, should I just have a rest? Maybe I just just wouldn't that be nice you know you don't even know that there's a lack of drive in your life
0: that's right and nowadays that lack of drive probably you'll express it as depression you know if if you if you're not exactly sure why you don't feel passionate about things or don't have a lot of energy or what have you the contemporary way to name that is depression and to end up with a pill that supposedly does something there and that's that's typically what goes on nowadays
1: so i've i've got I don't know the answer to this question, which is why I'm asking. Say, at the minute, I get told all the time that people are burnt out. If I said to you that every there's a pandemic of people being burnt out, how do you react to that?
0: Well, I think it's true in the sense that with our fractured days Texts coming in, emails to answer, what have you. I, I do believe we've never been busier. And I do believe that the idea of the weekend has kind of vanished. I mean, maybe some people still try to manipulate something called the weekend, but most entrepreneurs, most people I know, most creatives are holding the, the seven day, 24 hour work week now. So there's got to be burnout associated with that. There's also all of the shenanigans in the world that burn us out. That is just our desperate feelings about what's going on in the world. That's a pressure and a difficulty. For me, I try to present a picture to clients of a certain way of living their lives, a kind of paradigm shift from the idea of there's a purpose to life to the idea that there are multiple life purposes that you get to choose. You have to pick the three or four or five or six or seven important things in your life and if you don't get to them, then then life, then you will burn out or you'll feel depressed or one of those other kinds of words because you're not actually getting to the things that matter to you. And to my mind, each day is a negotiation around these life purposes. That is, which ones of them can I get to today? It's that other to-do. We have that one to-do list of the million things we have to get done. But few people have their life purposes to-do list sitting beside their computer of, am I going to get to this important thing and that important thing today? So I think that's it. I think the burnout thing is true. And I think one of the solutions or resolutions or answers to the burnout thing is to decide for yourself what's important and then get to those important things in a daily way.
1: I think that's really helpful. I, I often work with companies about trying to create a purpose for the organization, but I spend some time with clients, individuals saying, what's your purpose? Where, what, you know, where are you headed? You know, what, what's your meaning? What, what, are you going to do that derives? So that as you look back, you feel like you've done something useful with your time on the planet.
0: That's right. And you can tell from my language that I personally shifted from what's your purpose to what are your purposes?
1: Yes. Which, cause they change over
0: time. it changes over time. And I'll just to give you a simple example. Let, let's say you pick health as one of your life purposes. You want to get feel healthier, but your child comes to you and says, I need a kidney. Suddenly that's more important than your own health. You may now undergo surgery, which is not good for your health, but your life purposes just shifted be- because of what just occurred. So they do shift over time and they can shift dramatically. People believe in God one day and they stop believing in God the next day or, or vice versa, or, you know, all kinds of big shifts like that occur and they're earthquakes in a person's life. These are not easy things to accommodate or deal with. These are big shifts, but they must be negotiated.
1: And McKinsey did a great study. It was a long, I think 10-year study looking at executives and they were looking at executives in flow. And so they said, if you're doing work that puts you in flow, which I guess is true for the creatives that you work with. absolutely, Right, so-
0: I call it the trance of working, but it's the same idea.
1: Yeah, and so that they were five hundred. They found that these executives are five hundred times more productive, five x times more productive. If you're doing something that you get paid for, that I guess brings you joy, or for when you're when you're doing it, time stands still. Or for large chunks of it, you can get what did you call it? The trance of work. Is that what you called it?
0: The trance of working. Yeah, I love that.
1: I was reading another thing which actually said surfing was more effective at treating PTSD than the drugs because it forces you into a trance-like state. There's some waveform. Is it alpha waves? Is that what it is?
0: It's, a, it's about waveforms, but it's also about the following. This will take me a couple of sentences to explain, but and I sell all my clients on this if I can, and, and that's the idea that they ought to get to their creative work first thing in the morning before everything else. And for me, there are three big reasons. A, if you got to your work every day, you'd get a lot of work done. That's the obvious one. That's an easy number one.
1: As a creative, absolutely. Yes. But even as an early exec, people do it all the time. They start doing email and it gets to five o'clock and they've done nothing useful.
0: Exactly. Now, the second thing is, is what I want to talk about, and that's the, the trance part and the creativity part. Everybody knows we dream when we sleep. We dream in REM sleep. Most people don't know that we think in non-REM sleep. Our brain's active all night long. So both things, and they're different things, both things go on during the night. We dream and we think. If you go to bed with, here's my cute phrase, with with a wonder rather than a worry, with a sleep thinking prompt, like, I wonder what Mary wants to say to John in chapter three of the novel I'm writing, your brain will work on that during the night. It'll think. Mary and John will have a conversation. And all you have to do is wake up and go to the computer and take dictation in a kind of a trance-like state. You don't have to really wake up. In fact, you don't want to really wake up because the second you turn to the new day, Mary and John's conversation has vanished. It's gone. It's been eclipsed by your worries about the new day. So there's, call it a trance or kind of dreamy state or a sleepy state or some kind of state that is that state when we're first waking up. That's just about the most important time of the day for a creative person, maybe for anybody who's trying to get anything done. If you're trying to dream your new business into existence, the way to dream it into existence is not to wake up and work at it, but really to give yourself this kind of sleep thinking prompt the night before, like, what does my business want to look like? And let your brain work on it. Because when we sleep, that's the only time we have our 100% brain. During the day, we're thinking all of these small thoughts all day long. I have to pick up the kids at three and does the lawn need mowing and this and that. And we don't have to think those things when we're sleeping. So that's, that's why dreams are beautifully edited films, because we have our whole brain. And that's why we do our best thinking when we sleep. So most people are not making use of I have a whole book on this, of course, you, you can tell book called Sleep Thinking, <laughs> but it's it's 90 minutes or an hour or two hours of free creative time while you're sleeping. And it's I, I find it, I'm sort of on a mission to not have people waste or, or not get to know that they have this time available to them. They can write whole books or, or create whole businesses just by sleeping, so to speak. You do have to wake up at some point, but the sleeping part is really important.
1: I think from entrepreneurs' perspective, there is a definite creative element to most of the entrepreneurs that I work with that invention vision, you know, that do that work in the morning in that sleep-like state. I think that's a good tip. Don't have three double espressos and turn on your computer.
0: Not yet. No. I mean, at some point you'll have to walk the dog and have your coffee and all of that, but I I really advise people, even if they can get to this, get to their work in this trance-like state for two minutes, which does not sound like much. It's like eating potato chips. You can't really eat just one, and you can't really stay there for just. two. If you can show up for two minutes, you'll actually probably be there half an hour or an hour. It's it's the getting there that's so important, and people talk themselves out of getting there because they they say I don't have an hour. I, I, I'm too. I've got to. So I say, don't worry about an hour. Get there for a minute, please, just a minute. You have a minute, and then see what happens. And what happens is, of course, they stay for longer than that minute.
1: Yeah, that's the same. It's exactly well, you're using exactly the same mechanism there. That now I can't remember which book on habits it is, but this one which says you know commit to do one a day, one press up a day, for example. Because as you go to bed, you go, ah, oh, I forgot to do one, and then of course you won't do one. You'll do ten or whatever.
0: That's exactly right. And also, just to stay on the on the same area of sort of creatives and entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, I think know the following better than creatives do in some sense. And that is entrepreneurs typically, and hopefully don't worry about failure as much as people who don't succeed. They, they sort of rush right by failure. It's like hardly noticing it onto the next thing. And that's wonderful. And creatives take failure much more personally or as a greater disaster or, and they start to talk self, create self-talk around, I have no talent, I have no chance they denigrate themselves
1: and that's even before they failed i mean that's like a fear of failure which acts to stop them creating something
0: that's exactly right so i have to i have to tell clients all of the the truths about process only percentage of things they do will be any good who wants to hear that they may spend two years on a novel that doesn't work that's the truth of the matter no one wants to hear that but they they have to get acclimatized to process much better you would think a creative person would understand the creative process but they understand it very poorly. And if I say to them, you know, how many of Bob Dylan's songs are wonderful? 50 of the 3,000, it's a percentage. It's always going to be a percentage of the whole. A creative person's output, excellent output, is going to be a percentage of the whole and maybe a small percentage. Live with that, embrace that.
1: That's fascinating because often one of the things that I find really interesting with people who have, who have a lot of ideas, if you want a really good idea, you ask of somebody who has lots of ideas. Yep. You don't have somebody who has very few because the chances of their one idea being great. That's right. And and also the people who have one idea are really invested in that idea because it's valuable to them. Where I have a thousand ideas every day. If you don't like any of them, I don't care I'll have a thousand tomorrow. I'm just ambivalent to whether you like my ideas or not.
0: That's right. As you know, there's a direct relationship between having ideas and showing up because let's let's say there is a truth to an idea like inspiration. Well, you only get inspiration if you're showing up. Tchaikovsky has a line I like, which is, I'm inspired every fifth day, but I only get that fifth day if I show up the other four. So there's no reason to suppose that on any given day you're gonna have that wonderful idea, but you're not gonna have that wonderful idea if you haven't shown up on that day to your business or your novel or your whatever. You've gotta keep showing up to
1: it. Okay, so actually the, thing, the reason I mentioned the flow was I suspect that the people who get burned out are never spending any time in flow, right? So there's there's a large proportion of people who are just grinding and they're getting no joy out of their work. Whereas I think the people who have spent some time in flow, it inoculates them against their burnout.
0: Yes, and I, I, I want to add a something that's quite abstract, but actually important. And that is, in my vision of how things work, just as there isn't a singular purpose to life, but rather are multiple life purposes that we choose, I don't believe that there is a meaning to life, that, that there's some objective meaning out there that we are supposed to find. And that's been the metaphor for 2000 years to be a seeker of meaning that is out there. And I'm interested in the paradigm shift to the idea of making meaning, not seeking meaning, to stop rushing around off to India or someplace looking for meaning as if it were somewhere, but to stay put and make meaning. And from my point of view, meaning is just a feeling, it's not that important. And this is blasphemy, but it's, it's really, to my mind, just a feeling, like a, like joy or anger. It's a feeling. It's a special one, but it's just a feeling, which means it's going to come and go, like all feelings. This is big news about meaning. Meaning, the experience of meaning is going to come and go. What that means is you have to do your work, even if it's not feeling meaningful. And most people make the connection that I'm going to, Why? Why should I work on this novel? It's not feeling meaningful to me. Well, it shouldn't feel meaningful. Meaning is just a feeling that comes and goes. If you believe it's important to work on, then that's your rationale. That's your raison d'etre for doing it because it's important to you, not because it's giving you the experience of meaning.
1: Well, I like that because I, I was with a client yesterday and, and you know, we were talking about why do people come to work? What brings them a feeling of joy? And one of the things that people were saying is doing meaningful work. And somehow there's a, if you then say meaning is just a feeling, It's feeling that you're doing meaningful work rather than this thing that you are doing meaningful work. It's just, I, I feel that this is meaningful and like it brings me joy.
0: That's exactly right. And that's a big difference. It just sounds like a linguistic difference, but it's actually a big human difference to feel, to have a feeling versus to need the thing to be something that it can't be. As a simple example, let's say you're an activist in some cause, but your your job this week is to lick envelopes in service of the cause. That, that's your whole job this week is lick another envelope and lick another envelope. Well, you know why you're doing it. You're doing it because you believe in the cause, not because licking envelopes is a meaningful activity. So until you get that mature picture of it, I don't need this thing to feel meaningful if it's in the service of my life purposes. If I understand why I'm doing it, then that's what generates the feeling of meaning, not the work itself.
1: And I can probably then do it with some level of quality as opposed to just to get it done.
0: Some level of quality and some ease, some newfound ease around it all, that you're not seeking something, that you're not trying to get something out of it. And so many people are trying to get a feeling out of what they're doing. And if you're working on a novel for 300 days, for 286 days of those 300 days, you hate your novel. That's the truth of the matter. Most people don't like what they're working on and most creatives don't like what they're working on most of the time because they're struggling with a paragraph or struggling with a plot or struggling with this or struggling with that. So you can't you can't be working on these things and hoping to get the experience of joy sort of that smiley face day out of writing your novel, that's not the true experience. The true experience is not a smile.
1: And certainly, when you're working with your editor and doing the proofread and you've read it for the 50th time, just want to rip your eyes out.
0: Nothing could be more boring on the face of the earth. There's not a single thing.
1: It's just awful. I think nothing prepares people who've written a book having to read your own work for the umpteenth time.
0: Complete boredom, but there's also terror, like, what if I miss a dropped word? Or what if there's still some little error in there? So it's some weird combination of complete boredom and terror as as you work on a book.
1: I was in the studio recording the audio for my new book and I thought we had been through it enough time because when I did the first book, we didn't go through it enough and I found entire paragraphs of text. I'm sitting there going, Blah blah blah. Who wrote this shit? That was just total garbage. And I, whilst I was in the studio, I had to rewrite the paragraph and then re-record it. And then you know, but this time we were pretty good. We didn't find that many, but we did maybe ten in the whole book. I finished going. This was it was so much less draining this time because it was tighter,
0: well, closer to being excellent. And and I, I try to make distinctions with my clients between good work and excellent work because. Th- both things are wanted by clients. They want to do excellent work. We all, we, you know, we want to do excellent work, but we have to accept good work. The good work is the manuscript with still 15 little errors. That's good work. And then the excellent work is dealing with those last 15 errors. So both things are true. Both things are valuable.
1: Well, also you put things out and you think they'll be helpful. And then sometimes the things that are most helpful to people are not the thing that you thought would be the most helpful. And, and you get that sort of, I don't know. It, it's joy that there's a thing that people find helpful, but also it's, it, you just have to go that thing that I thought was, it goes back to the ideas. If you have, if you have volume, so, like Bob Dylan didn't sit there and say, I'm going to write 30 brilliant songs. You know, he, he just generated 3000 songs and all every time he published them, they were all good enough. And some of them turned out to be amazing. And you just never quite know when you're working on them how they'll be viewed in hindsight.
0: No, and a lot of a lot of my clients who are not particularly productive, I know that they're waiting for a guarantee that what they're about to start will work. they They want a money back guarantee. They want some guarantee that it's going to work out. and I just have to help them understand that there can't be a guarantee. You have to show up and not attach to outcomes. that's that's really. The secret, probably, for creatives and entrepreneurs both, you have to show up and not attach to the outcome.
1: So, is it your latest book, "Redesign Your Mind"?
0: Now, the latest is the Coach's Way that just came out, and th- that's a really a straightforward book about how the coaching session works. is for coaches about how to start sessions and how to end sessions and what to do in the middle of sessions. But it's also to help coaches relax into the understanding that they're, that they're not in an expert profession, they're in a helping profession. And there's a big difference. All they're, all they're trying to do is be of a little help, which is in contradistinction to the psych, psychiatric and psychotherapeutic worlds where they're acting like they're actually diagnosing, where they're, where they're acting like they're expert at something when they're not but they're acting like they're expert at something. Coaches have it both much, much easier and they can be much more generous and simple and compassionate on a given day because all they're trying to do is be of a little help. They don't have to know their client's world or they don't have to know what it's like to be an architect or, or a neurosurgeon or what have you. They don't have to know any of that. Just have to have a sense of a what, how human beings operate and what they need and what helps, what actually to offer a client by way of suggestions and how to co-create plans and goals and that kind of thing, which is, to my mind, easygoing. It's easy. Not that the, the work is easy for the client, but the work for the coach, I think, is easy to relax into a session, let the client speak, try to understand the client's world, ask quality questions, allow for quality silence. Just, I think it's, if you get it as a coach, I think it's a lovely place to be in session.
1: If, if coaching is the thing that puts you in flow?
0: I think it can, if you, you know, most, I was gonna say new coaches, but probably all coaches, most coaches come to sessions a little anxious because they're, you know, they're, they're on the spot. They, they, they wanna make sure they're earning their money or they're not gonna be criticized by their client or they're not gonna say the wrong thing. All of those worries that human beings have in interactions. If you can come not worried, then you can be in, in flow the whole session.
1: Yes. I. Sometimes people have said to me, what can I count on you for? And I said, I think you get this, you've got this the wrong way around. I'm the coach. I'm not accountable for anything. You're going to do all the work.
0: That's right. And I will say, you know, I'm, I'm directive. I'm going to poke around a little bit. I, I'm going to question this and question that. And I'm going to wonder aloud about things. So I'll be doing all of that. But you have to make the decisions and you have to do the work.
1: That's great. I'll have a look at that. And the redesign your mind. That sounds interesting.
0: I think it is. Let me speak to it a little bit. So for thousands of years, we've understood that we have to get a grip on our mind. That's the the Buddha's phrase for one of our tasks is to be in charge of our thinking. And, And the way that gets looked at nowadays is through cognitive behavioral therapy, mostly. That's the place where the idea of looking at thoughts, changing thoughts, substituting thoughts, all of that goes on. And I think cognitive therapy is pretty smart. I think there are some good ideas in cognitive therapy. But it occurred to me that wouldn't it be lovely that instead of arm wrestling thoughts, we could change the source of the thoughts. And so we could stop having to arm wrestle thoughts, but just have different thoughts, better thoughts, thoughts that serve us more. And because I was familiar with the idea of visualizing visualizations, which I'm sure you are too, and it's now a many decade old tool. Started actually in, in a hospital in Northern California in a, in a medical setting where doctors thought that they could help cancer patients visualize their healthy cells fighting their cancer cells. That's where it arose as a medical idea. But now everything's a visualization, visualizing winning at tennis or what have you. So I thought it would be interesting to just visualize your mind as a room and redesign it and redecorate it. And by that, I mean installing some windows so a breeze blows through so that you're not thinking the same old stuffy ideas. And getting rid of that bed of nails that most people are living on and and replacing it with an easy chair and having a calmness switch. So when you enter the room that is your mind, you just flip that calmness switch and you're instantly calmer. So it's just a series of visualizations to, to change the way you are in the room that is your mind so that you're calmer there, more comfortable there, more passionate there. And therefore, the ideas, the thoughts that arise then will become more in the service of your purposes your needs your wants and does it work absolutely it works it's one of those things where if you just get the the, the simplest idea like let me let me install some windows and let a breeze blow through it doesn't sound like a, a, a gigantic thing to do but but one is instantly refreshed by doing that it's not does it change your life completely but remember all we're talking about is being of a little help seriously that's what i think coaching is about being of a little help not necessarily transforming your life or making you like your wife or your job. It's, it's it's being of a little help. And these visualizations are of a little help, I think.
1: Very good. I will read that with interest. Do you do audio versions of your books or are you just?
0: The publishers do or don't. It's up to them to do it. I don't do it myself.
1: You don't read them?
0: I don't read them. Many of my books have audio versions, but I haven't done them.
1: Okay. I was just thinking it might be nice to listen to you. That's all.
0: Ah, time, it's time. Everything is time, comes down to time.
1: (laughs) So, what, Eric, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier?
0: It's something I knew and forgot. As I say, as a child, I understood the extent to which fascism was probably always going to come back. And then I forgot that sort of in in our blissful 1950s and 1960s or whatever, where we we thought maybe democracy was taking hold or liberty was liberty. We we just did not expect to get to where we've arrived to today. So I would say that that's what surprised me is that the whole culture, I think, got into the trance of believing that fascism wouldn't return the way it has returned, and now we stand surprised as, as, if, as if we shouldn't have known that, but we should have known that. And
1: from your perspective, having, as you say, growing up in a community of Holocaust survivors, did the community have a particular perspective on the civil rights movement or McCarthyism, or, you know, which is sort of a lack of tolerance for particular people in the United States?
0: Yeah. I mean, the people I knew, this is not the whole, you know, one chooses the people one knows. And so I'm sure there were, I mean, I know there were orthodox, right-wing, conservative believers who were not for liberty, freedom, what have you. But I I hung out with leftists. And so uh, like the father of one of my best friends was in the lincoln brigade many people will not remember what the lincoln brigade was but those were americans who enlisted to fight franco in the spanish civil war back in the late 1930s there are a lot of a lot of new york jews went to fight franco and those were the kinds of people i knew they were they were absolutely This was sort of before the women's movement. So I wouldn't say they were for that because this was before that, before gay rights, but certainly civil rights movement was on our minds. And and we were, so to speak, all for that.
1: Yeah. Against authoritarian, wherever it shows up.
0: Wherever it shows up. and, And that's right. That's the simple way to say it, wherever it shows up. I remember, maybe your listeners will remember Albert Camus novel, The Plague, which is an allegory about World War II. And it ends in a way that always struck me. And I read it as a very young person. It it ends with Camus saying, the rats always return for the edification of mankind. And I knew that that was true reading it, that the rats always return, But that's what we forgot in sort of blissful ignorance for a while. And the rats are back.
1: Okay. What are you railing against at the moment? What are you intolerant about
0: Disorders of childhood. That is how many millions of children are on multiple chemicals called medication when they ought not to be and how any kid with energy is going to get an ADHD diagnosis nowadays and is going to be given gateway drugs to addiction for no good reason except psychiatry has sold a bill of goods. So that's, that's my railing. My most of my railing at the split second is about the, the evils of psychiatry and psychology.
1: Okay. And what, given the conversations we have had today, or even just, you know, random books that you think are amazing, what do you think people should pick up and read?
0: I've always felt that I'm in the existential tradition, which is a certain philosophical and literary tradition. And if folks sort of have lost their understanding of that tradition or have never encountered it, then the books in that tradition would be Dostoevsky and camus and orwell and kafka so there, there's i think if one were to look up the existential literary tradition you'd find a host of books that are completely important and relevant today books like orwell's 1984 which comes to mind those are books that that should not get lost and that that are really valuable
1: i've never read 1984
0: mm-hmm. well then i recommend it to you and it it it's really it it's central idea that an individual can be fooled into thinking that Big Brother isn't watching when Big Brother is watching. It couldn't be more contemporary.
1: Fab, I've recently been exploring the Stoic tradition.
0: And that connects. The Stoic tradition connects to the existential tradition, probably is in that lineage. Absolutely.
1: Eric, what should people do tomorrow what advice do you have? So I'm gonna paraphrase some of the things you said and then see if there's another another nugget you can throw in. So you've said people should have some think something that they need to solve and then go to sleep. Get up in a trans like state and commit to doing two minutes. Yep. Might get longer. Create this calm redesign their mind and create calm space. What else could people be doing tomorrow?
0: See if they can feel that shift from maybe they've been spending a lot of time worried or wondering about the purpose of life. Make the shift to life purposes. Just add an S to that idea and create your own menu or list of life purposes and then do the amazing thing of actually getting to some of your life purposes on a given day.
1: Eric, that's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed for coming in and sharing your wisdom today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did.